0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, for the 42nd interview in this podcast series, I am pleased to welcome Rosemary B. to the show. Though she and I have only recently connected, our similar experience makes it feel as if we've known each other for years. Her story of more than 40 years of sobriety began at age six with her first sip of beer. But unlike other children, whose small sip was an infrequent occurrence at best, Rosemary's sips became a necessary everyday thing. Her parents, distracted by their own severe alcoholism, allowed her to continue drinking from age six until she got sober in her 20s. As the oldest child in a dysfunctional family, Rosemary also became the chief caregiver for her younger siblings, essentially raising them while her parents' disease made them oblivious to the needs of their own children. When she finally escaped the alcoholic madness of her childhood home, Rosemary's daily drinking, bolstered by a variety of drugs, left her on the streets of New York City, where her alcoholism and drug addiction flourished but an early marriage to an alcoholic led to a pregnancy that was the turning point in her life. Scared by the prospects of birthing a baby with medical problems, Rosemary quit the alcohol and drugs cold turkey. Ironically, the DTs she suffered were mistaken for symptoms of morning sickness, and neither she nor any of her doctors connected the dots. Fortunately, the baby was born healthy, and Rosemary was sober for the first time in her life. A brief stint in Al-Anon redirected her to the doors of AA, where she became a compliant and active member of the program. Rosemary's story has quite a few twists and turns, including a period of sobriety during which she attended few meetings. But she never strayed too far. Years of intensive trauma therapy helped her realign her ability and willingness to both share in meetings and work with others. Her experience in therapy, combined with a strong AA program, is one that many of us sober alcoholics have in our sobriety stories. In Rosemary's life, that experience has been indispensable. Interestingly, she directly credits her success in business to what she learned at the hand of alcoholic parents, as well as what she experienced on the streets of New York. As you listen to Rosemary's story, her soft-spoken words convey the importance of coming to terms with past demons. The sobriety she's crafted over the past 40 years reflects both hard work in the program and a heartfelt desire to help others. So sit back and enjoy the next 60 minutes with my friend and AA sister, Rosemary B. My
1: name is Rosemary, and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Rosemary. I'm so glad you could do this today. Uh, When I saw you last night and we got things set up for today, I was really looking forward to it because... You're one of those people who I don't know that well. I've just recently met you, and we've been running around in the same circles for a period of time, but for whatever reason, we haven't seen each other in meetings. And then you started to come to our Saturday evening meeting, and I saw you there. These interviews are a great way for me to get to know people. And from the things I've heard you say in meetings and the way you've expressed them, I thought, I need to have Rosemary on this show. I need to interview her because her story sounds really interesting and engaging. And so really, really appreciate your willingness to do this today.
1: Thank you. You know, it's an honor every time you're asked to share anything about yourself in AA. It's an honor.
0: Oh, yeah, it is good. It is good. So, I don't think I've ever heard you say out loud in a room that I was in how many years you've been sober and what your sobriety date is.
1: So, I got sober on October 2nd, 1980. Wow. Which makes 40 years of sobriety.
0: 40 years? Holy smokes. That is a long long time a long time interestingly i've had maybe a half a dozen people on the show so far who've been sober 40 plus years and it's amazing and i would have guessed high double digits but 40 oh i I didn't expect that so congratulations on that (laughs) thank you so what was happening on october 1st in your life back in 1980
1: so i was actually um past the dt stage Uh uh-huh on october 1st okay it was my mom's birthday Mm -hmm. And my mom um, was an alcoholic, so she insisted we all have a drink for her birthday. Mm. So I did on October 1st. And for me, that was the breaking point. That was the last time I said to myself, no one's ever going to push me to do something I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to take that drink, but I did for her birthday. And so the next day, I picked up a desire chip at AA and said, no mas, that's it.
0: That's the last drink you had. Mm-hmm. You mentioned having gotten through the DTs. That was the period just before you took that drink that you got through the DTs? Or what What was that about?
1: Let's see. Um, I got pregnant in 1978, right. so a couple of years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got pregnant, I decided to stop, drink, doing, stop drinking, taking drugs, smoking, everything. That's smart. Well, you could say smart. You could say fear. For me, it was fear. Like I was uh, very afraid to have a baby that was addicted. Right. Um, we didn't even know what happened to addicted kids back then. We just knew it was not good, and I was really afraid.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So
1: I stopped doing everything cold turkey. Uh, not a good idea.
3: Uh huh.
1: I was in the hospital a lot uh, with my pregnancy. Nobody expected a woman in her early twenties was pregnant to be having the DTs and I didn't know I was either
2: hmm.
1: um, I was dehydrated sick to my stomach uh, seeing things mm-hmm. um, now the dehydrated and sick to your stomach is kind of normal-ish for pregnancy so they you know put me in the hospital with a bunch of ID IVs and stuff uh, the seeing things was a little outside the OB's box huh. but he didn't know what to do with that either so as I look back in hindsight, I can clearly see that all that shaking and sickness and what was my body's reaction, not just to the pregnancy, but to the lack of alcohol and drugs in my system. Uh-huh. That's kind of how I actually got sober.
0: Did any of the doctors bring that up as a possibility? Did any of them say, have you been drinking?
1: No, it wasn't even on anyone's radar.
0: How about you? I mean, you, you're laying there shaking and dehydrated and everything. Did you say, maybe this is about the alcohol I've been drinking and not drinking now?
1: So, curiously, I had no idea that alcohol was the problem. Like, I've been drinking for so long in my life by that time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it just never dawned on me. Even after I was in AA mm-hmm. and picked up the Desire Chip,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it never dawned on me that, that alcohol was the problem and the reason behind like all the chaos in my life. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was crazy. I had lost my mind, and this is how crazy people act and speak. and.
0: Mm-hmm. How did that turn out, the the pregnancy and the delivery and everything?
1: My, my son was born um, perfectly. Oh great. He was nine pounds and two feet long, which <laughs> I know. <laughs> Holy
0: <smokes. I'm, laughs> that's big. I
1: know. I'm five three oh, for the my people gosh. who can't see. And this kid was healthy and robust and huge. Oh, that's wonderful. And it was the first time I think in my life, I thank God for that miracle. Yeah. That was clearly a miracle that that, kid, that my son was born healthy.
0: Wow. You had stopped everything before you went into the DTs. Was that in 78 or 79 that you stopped everything?
1: That was in 78.
0: Okay, so set from 78 until the time you took the drink that your mother foisted upon yeah. you. So you were actually sober for about, what, a year, year and a half before that final drink?
1: In February of 79, my son's dad, who's my ex, mm-hmm. came into AA and brought me into Al-Anon. Oh, wow. So um, the people in Al-Anon loved me enough that I stayed.
0: Huh. Yeah.
1: And I had never had anybody uh, love me like that.
0: That's beautiful.
1: I, I know. It was so beautiful. And yeah. um for the first six months in Al-Anon, uh-huh. you got to picture this. I would not talk to anybody. I would not tell them my name
2: because
1: hmm. I didn't know what they might do with that information. I didn't tell them a thing about myself when they called on me to talk. I would just like, I didn't even know the word pass. I just shake my head. No, hmm. not, ta- not talking. Um, and eventually when I did start to talk, I talked about craving alcohol. Hmm. Like, how old does your child have to be so that you can safely drink again? That was my first Al-Anon question. And um, the lovely, beautiful people uh, in Al-Anon said, maybe you belong across the hall in the AA room. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? And they explained, like, we we don't actually crave alcohol over here. Mm-hmm. But the people on the other side of the hall, they do. Yeah. So why don't you go over there and, and, and meet with them? Yeah, so that's how I got into the actual the rooms where I actually belonged.
0: A number of women who I know from the meeting that you and I go to who have a similar story about being in Al-Anon first and disclosing their cravings or their drinking and being directed to AA from Al-Anon. If there's ever a good service, and of course, Al-Anon does some great service, it's pointing people to AA when they're identified in an Al-Anon meeting. So you mentioned that your husband went into uh, AA.
1: Yeah. So um, we met... When I was 18,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he was a heavy drinker at that point. I would say alcoholic. Yeah. Um, he was also, uh, at this point in time, a light heavyweight boxer. Mm-hmm. So when I, the night I met him, he had a broken nose and two black eyes <laughs> and was drunk. And I said, my hero, <laughs> this is the guy I'm going to marry. My kind of guy. <laughs> and so, um, from that time through our marriage, uh, which was only a few couple of years, mm-hmm. um, we never had a sober day mm. ever. We, we drank the, the entire time. So I, I think the catalyst, well, that's his story, what, what drove him to AA. But, um, there were some things going on in our life and I think he finally had enough.
0: How long between the time that you became divorced till he actually came into the program?
1: Uh, he was in, he came in. Originally in, um, 79, I think. I hope I'm getting my years right. And I think he's got about 15 years now. So he was back out.
0: Okay. So he went back out while, while you stayed in.
1: Yeah. By stayed, Yeah. I stopped.
0: And so were you and he drinking partners or were you doing it independently of each other?
1: Oh, no. We would, we were together. We would drank together, uh, fought together, hung out in bars together, ripped people off together. <laughs> we did a lot of stuff together. <laughs>
0: So when you stopped in 78, you were already divorced from him at that point?
1: We got divorced after I picked up my desire chip. And, you know, in AA, they tell you, like, don't make any major decisions for the first year Uh because your head's in so much of a fog and you really don't know what you're thinking about. I got a dispensation from my sponsor and the group of people Uh that helped sponsor me to um, get separated way before that year we needed to be apart badly yeah
0: yeah it was a tough situation sounds like at home it was was it fueled mostly by alcohol would you say that uh, with alcohol in the picture it made things considerably worse or did it soften things up
1: well I'll say it this way without alcohol we were crazier like you know how alcohol it taps down a lot of stuff and it keeps your crazy mind like a little bit more in control yeah because it's getting a release Mm. through the alcohol and the drugs right without that and i've seen other people have this experience you can really go a little little haywire those first few months and uh, we went a little haywire we sure did.
0: So drinking allowed you to stay married for longer than you otherwise would have had that craziness come out without the booze. That's true, for sure. So you get separated and divorced. You've got a little baby or toddler by this point. Mm-hmm. What was life like yep. for you in the early days of AA and being a new mother?
1: It was interesting. Uh, as I alluded to, like I had, I had a sponsor. Her husband was NAA, alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And then we had two other couples, uh, two other Al-Anon women and their spouses. Mm-hmm. And the six of them collectively raised me in AA. Hmm. So when I was brand new, um, I took my son to every meeting. Like he had to come, sure. right? He was an infant. He came in the little baby carrier. <laughs> then he came on a nap pad. <laughs> then he came in the playpen. And we'd set that up in the club. And he'd stay in the playpen. And I'd be in the next room at the meetings. He came everywhere with me. And then I was working. Get home from work, pick him up from daycare, go home, feed him, uh-huh. and the babysitter would come over, and I would make the eight thirty meeting every night. Wow! And I did that for ten years, like every night without a stop. I went through the mom of the of the babysitting family, the oldest daughter, and two sons. Oh my goodness! <laughs> As they grew up.
3: Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: So you had a you had a reliable source of child care then that made it easier for you to go to meetings, huh? I did. Uh, Is he your only child? He is. So you're getting sober in AA. You got your sponsor right away, or was there a period of time between coming into the program and getting your sponsor?
1: The group picked my sponsor for me.
0: Okay. This is back when they did those things, (laughs) you know? Yeah,
1: sure. I picked a lady who drank at home and like a couple of glasses of wine a night. Right. And I'm like, oh, that lady... That's pretty cool. I wonder if she can teach me how to just drink a couple of glasses of wine at night. And that's why I picked her.
0: You thought she was still drinking, huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, how smart is she? I can't even do that. Yeah. Like, I can't even do that. And, and the group said, no, 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 she's not going to be your sponsor. This other lady uh, who was a bar drinker and a partier mm-hmm. and did many of the things I did, she is going to be your sponsor. And so that's how I got my sponsor. They picked it for me. I,
0: and how long was she your sponsor for?
1: Good long time. 15 years, maybe? And then when she um, decided to no longer sponsor people mm-hmm. for some things that were going on in her life, she gave me to her sponsor.
0: Oh, cool. So
1: then I had her sponsor until um, till she died in 95. She got cancer
2: and died. Oh, no. So.
0: Sorry. Yeah. So did she get you started on the steps right away? Uh, what was her sponsoring technique and how is that reflected in the way you sponsor people?
1: Yeah, she did get me started on the steps like right away. And more than that, um, she taught me how to do life. Like, I didn't physically move into her house with her, but had me over for dinner. Um, the sixth sponsor group, they would go to conferences with me. Mm. I like, would be in the back of the suburban with the rest mm-hmm. of them, you know, um, they go out to dinner. They took me. They just let me into their life and taught me everything from how to dress to how to what fork to use when you're eating food, hmm. how to put the napkin on your life. Like they taught me everything. Wow. The first time she came over to my house to do the fifth step, she came to my home for us to do the fifth step. And um, shoot, I'm going to say this. She said that she had seen more comfortable bus stations than my house (laughs) (laughs) because (laughs) I had a couch and a chair and (laughs) a crib and some crap on the floor in the bedroom. Like that's how I lived. And I didn't know there was another way to live. So, uh, the next week we went to target and got towels and sheets and cutlery. And, um, I didn't have that stuff growing up.
0: Right. So you did your fifth step in, um, uh, a faux bus station, then, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did that go? What was your reaction to the having done the fifth step with her?
1: Um, it was the first time I'd ever told anybody my life story. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do the fourth step exactly like it was in the book, mm-hmm. uh, set out in the columns to do because I couldn't figure out the columns. I, I just my brain was not functioning that way. I didn't know why Mr. Brown was in the book. I, yeah. I couldn't figure out any of it. So she just said, just write down about your life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What happened? What you did as a reaction to what happened? And so, um, my fifth step was the first time anybody had heard what I remembered up until that time mm. of what went on in my life growing up. Mm.
0: Were you able to get to everything during that one fourth step or did you have to do multiple fourth steps over the years?
1: Yeah, I've, I've done multiple, um, and then I've done uh, thematic. So like a step on parents or a step on uh, financials, like after the original four, couple of fourth mm-hmm. and fifth steps. Um, and for me, that's that's worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, as memories returned, as things changed in my life, mm-hmm. then, then those things seem to bubble up in and of themselves to get worked on.
0: I found in doing the fourth and fifth step, a number of times, that certain patterns emerge from it that I notice in my life in the day that I'm doing the fourth and fifth step, which may be years after the last one, and The good thing about doing it with a sponsor is he can remind me of those patterns which are still reoccurring and those that aren't. And that's been very helpful to me over the years. Yeah.
1: Finding the patterns
0: is very, very helpful. So you've done the fifth and sixth step. And when I'm doing these interviews, I like to walk people through that process so that anybody listening who's still wondering how important the steps really are can see how mm-hmm. people with good long-term sobriety, how important they were to their foundation of their sobriety. When you got to the eighth and ninth step, what was that like? Yeah.
1: This is so interesting because I was in an eighth step meeting this morning. So the eighth step for me was just about making the list, right? Just make the list. And um, I had everybody I probably ever met on the list. Like I had people, a lot of people on the mm-hmm. list, even though I was in my mid twenties by now. I didn't have the wreckage that some people who don't come into the age of their forties and fifties did. I just didn't, just wasn't alive long enough to create it. And when I read the list to my sponsor and told them why I was on the list, she started to remove people from the list. Hmm. And I was like, Oh my, I can't wait to call your sponsor and tell her that you are removing people from my list.
0: This is crazy. You'll show her.
1: (laughs) I would know that was. Now, think about the blessing and the grace of the lady in front of me who my sole purpose is to catch her in an AA faux pas, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, um on the list, I had uh my siblings, and she said, well, why are they on the list? I'm like, well, because I was not a good mother to them. Mm. And she's like, take them off the list. I'm like, no, but I was a crappy mom. You know, I, I was drinking and I was doing drugs, and I I didn't support them well enough, and Some nights when they needed help with their homework, I just, like, gave them the answer and went instead of teaching them. Mm -hmm. And she's like, take them off the list. And we went around and around. And finally, she told me, you're not their mom. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I had never seen it that way. You know, my, my parents were drunks, and I was the oldest of five, so the other kids... Believe it or not, in all my drinking, I was the stable, responsible one in that household, oh. which is just as scary as it yeah. can be. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, so we had, we had to take them off the list. Wow. And then I didn't have my mom on the list because what had she done? She couldn't help it. She was drunk. Yeah. And she's like, put her on the list. <laughs> okay. It was like, th- this is, this was me back then. Yeah. So, so totally confused about life. Uh-huh. And, and what it was supposed to be. You know, there were certain uh, amends that I had to make in my ninth step where she insisted I take another AA person with me. Like, wh- when I went to my mom and told her, you know, I was sorry that I stole so many of her drugs from her mm-hmm. um, and that I, you know, drank the alcohol and put water in the bottle, like all the stuff regular alcoholic kids do. And some other things that she had done She got very angry. Mm
2: -hmm. She got
1: very angry. Mm. You know, how dare you say I ever took pills and get out of my house and, uh, you know. And had I not had another AA person there with me, Mm -hmm. I don't know how I would have dealt with that. Yeah. So that when we walked out, that person said you know, that was all about her and not about you. And no, I did not know that. (laughs) She attacked me.
0: Well, from time to time, we hear about people slipping after doing a ninth step that doesn't work out. How uh, prophetic that your sponsor had you take along another AA with you.
1: Yeah, she was brilliant. She was really brilliant.
0: Mm -hmm. So you got through the ninth step. Uh, my, My sponsor did something similar with me. He he went through my list. I had the list, of course. And and he asked me point blank at every name. He said, what was the harm you did to them? And a lot of it was imagined harm. It wasn't real harm. It was thought harm. Uh, I thought a certain thing. And I had such low self-esteem that I felt like everything that was wrong with that person was my fault. And uh, like you until I got straightened out on this, I essentially let my, some of the people who caused the most abuse off the hook because now that I'm sober, I understand them and they didn't know what they were doing. And they were just, you know, there's mental illness going on and I can't blame them for that. It's hereditary, blah, blah, blah. And my sponsor said, that doesn't mean that they didn't, that, that, that you didn't, uh, you know, create problems there and have a role to play and what went on so you know tell me the harm and i ended up putting people back on the list who needed to be on there but most of them i took off because i couldn't prove any actual harm was done to them and it made the list a lot more manageable did you find the same thing
1: i did i did find the same thing things that i had blown out of proportion in my mind that were Uh not big things at all and that other things that i tried to slough over like I was kind yeah. of like semi victimish here, so they had more of a part than I did, so I didn't have a part, yeah, well, that's not true. I still have my section of the part, you know um and and that I had to own up to
0: yeah, and sometimes the only part we have is the fact that we were there I mean when you're a when you're a two and a half or three year old kid and you're getting the uh, you're getting beaten by your father. You can easily say that you were a a victim and you didn't have a part in that. And it's understandable, but you wouldn't have suffered that harm had you not been there. So the fact is that you were just you were there. So you had a part to play. It's not that doesn't mean you're guilty of it or caused it. It just means that there's your part. That helped straighten me out and, and really get an understanding that made forgiving my parents along the way that much less difficult, let's say, to do. So
1: And for me, it was a little bit different. For me, it was, I, as that two and a half, three year old, like, I should have behaved better. Yeah. I shouldn't have looked at my dad crookedly, which set him off into a, Like, it, I was more in that boat, um, than, than the way, uh, the way that you described. Yeah. And so, uh, t- so let myself off the hook to forgive myself for carrying that guilt and so misplaced. Mm-hmm. And really the only way my sponsor could get my attention and, and shift me was like, you know, was, is there ever a look your son could give you that would cause you to do bodily harm to him? Mm. Well, of course not. Right? Then how could your dad, like, how could you say it was about your look, Rosemary?
3: Uh-huh.
1: When your dad did that to you? That was the first time that I could see the shift and I could see that it wasn't my behavior. It was him mm-hmm. and his alcoholism
0: that kind of understanding or self-understanding even pointed out by your sponsors really pretty astonishing when you get to it yeah it's amazing how covered up we get with fear and guilt and shame and then we get to the steps that help us unpack those things and then mm-hmm. not only do we unpack them but then we got to do something with them like make amends and it's not an easy process but it's necessary right I've interviewed some other people who were the oldest of a number of siblings, and their job in the family, because they were raised by either one or both alcoholic parents, meant that they were the de facto primary caregiver slash adult slash surrogate parent in those other siblings' Mm -hmm. life. You'd mentioned something like that. During your early years, can can you tell me a little bit more about how that all unfolded with regard to your siblings?
1: So yeah, so we are um, an Irish Catholic family. So my mom had five children in four and a half years. Oh my goodness! All singletons, all single. Yeah, so we're all smushed together. But my brothers and sisters never saw it that way. Mm. They didn't see that they were a year behind me and a year behind me and a year. You know, they saw me as the parental figure mm. and and they were the children. And so it really distorted. Like I grew up, I never felt like I had a sister mm. or a brother because I was the caretaker and they were the kids that needed care. So it was a very distorted way to live. Yeah.
0: Was that instilled in you by your parents or was that just a role you fell into because that's just what happened?
1: Yeah, that's the, that's a good question, right? Yeah, Like how aware... Were they that I would pull up the slack and how much did they put me in the position to pull up the slack
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: how much were they just so loaded all the time? Mm. They weren't thinking at all. Like they did not have that thought at all. Mm -hmm. They were just happy somebody was doing it. You know, Mm. Uh, that's a question that's not answered for me.
0: Yeah. What's interesting about that is the the closeness of age. I mean, other people that I've interviewed where they kind of played that role, there was wider gaps between the ages. So it wasn't uncommon for them to be a middle teenager or an older teenager caring for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. But it sounds to me like Mm -hmm. with the closeness in ages, how could you not be peers at some point? How could you not just be brother and sister and, and how did you evolve into the mom of the pack?
1: Yeah, it's an attitude thing, right? Yeah, I mean, served me well in later life as a leadership quality. Uh-huh. But when things were chaotic in the house, mm-hmm. um, or when there wasn't
2: food, mm-hmm.
1: or when we didn't have enough um, clothes or whatever, I got it. I mean, I was the forager. I was like the radar arriving of the family. <laughs> like, we need food, <laughs> go get it. And and I figured out a way to get it, and I knew how to do that. Yeah. Um, and it was a skill set I built on and made a great life out of. And back then, you know, like all kids, when you're in the middle of mm-hmm.
2: it,
1: you have no no idea that it should be different, yeah. that you shouldn't. do Like, okay, well, we don't have food. Well, it's either me go out and get it or go hungry. Now, you make that choice. There, there's no choice. Yeah. You know.
0: Does alcohol, uh, as you look a little bit deeper into the family history, both of your parents were alcoholics. Did it run in their parents and in their siblings?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't have good historical facts about my family like all my grandparents were dead before i was born so i don't really have the grandparent thing yeah. there was a lot of drinking all around uh-huh. us like big irish family bro- you know cousins aunts and uncles uh-huh. all drinking at parties and and things like uh-huh. that who all was exactly an alcoholic or who wasn't like i don't really know yeah. so that was all up in new york city i left new york Uh, in my early twenties and never lived back there again.
0: So, yeah. So when was, when was your first drink and, and what were the circumstances under which you took that?
1: So for people like me who grew up in an alcoholic family, Mm -hmm. from a very young age, you're always taking a sip, right? You get a sip of this, you get a sip of that. Um, but I had my first can of beer with my name on it when I was, um, at a party when I was six. So I started drinking when I was six, drank just about every day from that time until I got sober. Um, so I had my beer, like when you're small and six, a couple of sips will get you a little buzz. Yeah. Like you don't have to drink a whole can of beer. And so I would take a few sips and put that back in the back shelf of the fridge. Uh-huh. That started the process for me. So I would come home from school, get out my black and white notebook, my little number two pencil and my Peel's beer. You know, and I'd write my name and take a sip and do my little, you know, one plus one and hmm. take a sip, and that's that's how I that's how I lived. I mean, that's that's the way I grew up.
0: Was that in an unsupervised environment, or, or were your parents aware of you doing that?
1: Okay, they could have been present. Were they aware? Is a different question. Were they present sometimes?
0: So they didn't look at that as something that you sh- definitely should not be doing.
1: Not real, no. And it was kind of like this, even at a very early age, it was, um, gee, mom, don't give me a hard time. Mm. I just made dinner. Mm -hmm. There's where my part starts, right?
0: Uh So you were exonerated from that kind of behavior by doing the things that your mom might otherwise have done had she not been drinking all the time. Yeah. With your folks drinking, was there any violent behavior or other things going on from them or were they just mostly drunk and left you all alone?
1: Yeah, I probably don't talk much about their violent behavior, Mm -hmm. so we'll just say they were drunk and uh, did what drunk people do.
0: I get that. So you're six years old when you start drinking. You're an everyday (laughs) drinker at six. Yeah. Were you chasing the buzz from six? Were you aware that the reason you were doing this was because of the way it was changing your feelings, or were you just doing it just because that's what you were doing?
1: Oh no, you get a real buzz. I mean, even from uh-huh. beer. Yeah, I was chasing the buzz. It felt good. Yeah. Yeah. It made me feel very adult. Uh huh. And I was already doing adult stuff. So why shouldn't I have adult drinks? Like that was like a little thing going on in my brain. Um, I would say for me, it was definitely the buzz.
0: I get that. So how about your siblings? Did they engage in the same kind of behavior or did you keep them away from it?
1: Um, I kept them away. When they were that young. Yeah. Uh, when they got into their teenage years, uh, by then there was almost nothing to do with them and for them.
0: Yeah, I can imagine a six year old heading into. Grade school, you know, you're about, what, first grade and moving into second, third through yeah. fifth, that sort of thing. So you're growing up drinking. Did you ever have any consequences from that behavior at school or with your friends while you were that young? Or did you just get away with it uh, for mm-hmm. a, a period of time?
1: I got away with it. I was, believe it or not, I don't know how this happened, but I was super smart in school. huh. So I always got the good grades. Yeah even though I wasn't getting a lot of sleep and drinking all the time. And I learned quickly what to share with my girlfriends and what not to share. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned that from my parents, right? Don't tell anybody. Like, we keep these secrets. We don't talk. And so I didn't talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to find kids who were engaging in the same kind of behavior to hang out with, you yeah. just pretty much went to school and acted as if this wasn't going on at home.
1: Mm-hmm. That is that is true.
0: So the, the same kind of rules that your parents set for acknowledging their alcoholism in the outer world existed for you when you were in elementary school, huh? Sure. I mean, who, who else do you learn from? Did you find other kids at that time where... I mean, because when I was in elementary school, we tried all kinds of things. I'm not talking about six years old, but by the time I was in fourth and fifth grade, we were trying all kinds of different things, cigarettes. And did you have a group of people with whom you did those things that early?
1: Not that early. That early, I was hanging around with the good kids. Uh Yeah, the kids that really didn't get in trouble. Yeah, the kids that would have you over your house so that you could have dinner with them. I mean, think about it. When you're hungry and you have a good girlfriend that has a mom that cooks, you die for the invite, right? So you had to, you know, if you wanted to go to those houses, you had to act a certain way. I really wanted to go to those houses. Yeah. So I acted a certain way to get the invite.
0: I can imagine you didn't have very many people coming over to your house for dinner.
1: Uh, No, nobody ever came to my house. Never.
0: So as you got out of elementary school and moved up in, in grades, let's say into junior high or middle school and then into high school. What kind of trajectory did your drinking take over that period of time?
1: So by the time I was 12, uh-huh. um, I started a dual addiction.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that's when I started a pill habit, uh-huh. pot, you know, all the kind of drugs that were running around New York City uh, back in that those days. Um, that moving on to the drugs allowed me to taper off of the alcohol a little bit. Like I was drinking so much. It was, it was hard to get enough. Like I'd already watered down all the parents' booze. There wasn't enough beer in the fridge for my mom, my dad, and me. Right. So yeah, drugs really helped me a lot. The ability to get alcohol wasn't that. Uh, easy at that point. Yeah. So they picked up the slack.
0: So it was an accessibility issue, wasn't it? Yeah. I've heard that from other people too, who said that the, the only downside to drinking when you're that young is that it's a lot easier to get the drugs than it is to get the booze. That,
1: that was definitely true. By that time, like the liquor stores in the uh-huh. neighborhood all knew me. And so they wouldn't sell anymore. So drugs pick, picked up the slack for me.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The big book podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. What was your drug of choice at that time?
1: Um, Back early high school, it was mostly pills. Mm. Uh, Uppers, downers, we had all sorts of street drugs going around. And then into high school and into the later years of high school, you know, it got into the more heavy, heavy drugs. Hmm. I always drank with and I always drank first, like drank to get out of the house to go get the pills, uh-huh. you know. But yeah, the heavier drugs were not until later on in high school.
0: Did you find that you were getting addicted uh, at some point to the pills, and were you starting to recognize difficulties in not taking the pills or not drinking at any point during high school?
1: Not drinking? I didn't know that when I was sick it was from not drinking, believe it or not. Wow. Um, I had a quite a large, like, jelly bean jar filled with pills that I kept, you know, hidden in my room, like between the wall and my mattress was my jelly bean jar full of pills. So I had pretty good access there. I never really let it run out. I learned, you know, supply and demand pretty easily. Um, it was, there's a lot of supply. I got a lot so that when things weren't so easy on the street, I had my stash Uh already. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that I ever felt like I wasn't getting enough, which is a mind trick, right? Because you don't know you're addicted because you never go without. Yeah. So you don't, You don't think I must be addicted because I'm taking all this. The only time you feel addicted is when you can't get it. Yeah. So if you can never not get it. Yeah,
0: cool. Yeah, I guess that's true. And when you are not drinking, at least the DTs inform you that perhaps you've been doing too much and maybe you're addicted. But right. when you're just on that constant high or altered state from the drugs, you're not going to know because you don't have any, any sober moments to compare them to. Right. With all of that access that you had and this big jelly bean jar full of pills, were you involved in dealing to your friends or were you, did you become involved in selling at any point?
1: I sold some, mm-hmm. but I mostly sold other things to get the money. Mm-hmm. So I sold some pot for a while. It was not as lucrative as the other things.
0: Did you have a, a certain group of people? You said that you you hung out with the Smarties. Uh, was that the case <laughs> after you were doing drugs more frequently, or did you shift your social group to a different brand of kids?
1: It was starting to shift. I maintained... Um, some girlfriends in high school that were still, you know, on the, on the good side of life. Mm-hmm. So after I got out of school in the afternoon, I would go to work for a couple of hours. Then I'd go home, take care of the kids for a while, and then go back out. Uh, and then the night crowd was a different crowd.
0: Hmm. I see. So you did some kind of handoff to the next oldest when you went out in the evenings?
1: Yeah, I go out about 9 or 10. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty well um, done with their day and getting them ready for bed and stuff.
0: So the drug scene in those days, as I recall, both my older siblings were were heavily involved. Uh, but at that time, people were doing acid, and they were uh, there was a certain number of them were IV uh, drug users. Did you ever get involved in those particular drugs?
1: I never tripped because I was way too afraid of what my mind like. I was scared to death my mind would never come back. Mm -hmm. My mind was teetering on the edge. Um, So the most hallucinogenic, like we smoked a lot of hash. Mm. And then uh, to get higher, we soaked the hash in formaldehyde and smoked that.
0: That's wicked, isn't it? Yeah,
1: that that really gets you up there. That was pretty wicked. Plus, it's formaldehyde, which, you know, limited science, you know, they put dead people in it. You know, anyways, it was a whole mind trip head thing to, to do that. Yeah, that was kind of like the worst. It, for me, it wasn't how bad the drug was. It was like how often and how much. And that was steady and a lot. But it was for me then, that's part of my life now is starting to be more fun. Like this is when the fun's kicking in, right? You know, getting super stoned, going to music, mm-hmm. um, just listening to music to you can't hear another note in your, in you know, that it follows you around in your mind for days afterwards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah.
0: Did you get involved in the hippie movement or the anti-war movement at that time?
1: Um, A little bit anti-war, very hippie. Like, you know, I mean, I lived a few train stops away from the village, so mm. that's where I went in the evening uh, mm-hmm. after I put the kids down. I, I would go hang out down the village for the rest yes. of the night. Early morning and then go back home. It's
0: a pretty cool time, wasn't it?
1: It was. It was different.
0: So, from high school, did you what? What did you end up doing after high school?
1: Uh, yeah. So, when I got out of high school, um, I went to work. My first job. Well, I worked all through high school, like in grocery stores and uh, kind of like WalMarts, but we didn't have anything like that back then. And of course, in the city, they didn't have the property to have that. But anyways, um, so I worked from the time I was young. Um, but after high school, I went and got a full time job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a file clerk at a financial firm because, you know, I was real. I knew that alphabet,
2: you know, uh-huh. so I would just <laughs>
1: file, file all day long. <laughs> um, and uh, little did I know, like from that job, a gigantic career was built. So wow. but that, that's what I did after high school.
0: Did you go back to, to school at all uh, to college or any kind of after high school or, or you just moved ahead with your career through the, the the firm you were working for?
1: I was just I just moved ahead with the firm so my well, my my sweetest interior joke for me is um, I I was like the most absent kid in my in the end of my high school like in mm-hmm. senior year I was the most absent. Uh, I think they just gave me that diploma to get me the heck out.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, when I finally, right before I retired, like I never hired anybody in my department who had less than an MBA
0: <laughs> at an
1: Ivy league. So I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, it was it's just kind of tickled. It still tickled me today. I'm like, I think that's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> and Rosemary, that's the American success story right there. It, it is. really is. And for the kind of childhood you had and starting drinking at six and being involved the way you were with drugs to accomplish what you have accomplished, it absolutely points to a functional alcoholic. We know that. But the fact that you were able to be so successful, it's rare. And especially when you, you pour booze and put pills on top of it. D- did you scale back at all when, when you started moving up in your company? Or what was your drinking and drug use like yeah. when you started to work?
1: I was a maintenance drinker during the day. Uh-huh. So, so, like, my typical breakfast on the way to work was um, a blender full of vodka, kcalor, some milk, and an egg for protein. And i blend that up and, and go to work. And then when I got to work, like, you get a bagel or something from the little truck that went around the halls at work or whatever. Uh-huh. So, I maintained throughout the workday because I – I, what else, you know, I, I needed the money. Hmm. Um, and then at night, it was like just craziness. But when you're hmm. young, you can get crazy, yeah. sleep for a couple of hours, go home, shower, sleep for a couple of hours and go back to work.
0: And the kind of business you were in also lent itself greatly to the after work, drinking and parties amongst the uh, more senior associates and their staffs and that sort of thing. Did you engage in that very much?
1: Uh No, I never drank with people I worked with. Really? Yeah. That was like, I don't know where those like little mind rules came from, but I'm like, no, they don't ever get to No. I just stayed away from, you know, just to, like stay away from those people. Like mm. their trouble is going to happen and I'm not going to be in the midst of it. Best thing I know about, um, you know, my career for me, this is how I see it. It yeah. was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself.
2: Hmm. That
1: before I even knew... God cared, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: nothing um, prepares you for the career I had. So I, I was a stock trader. So mm-hmm. I worked for a large um, financial firm and I ran their stock trading department. Mm-hmm. So nothing prepares you for stock trading like living with two alcoholic parents. You have to be quick. You have to move on your feet. You have to catch the patterns. You have to know what's going to happen ahead of time. You have to put a lot of data in, let mm-hmm. it make sense and let it come out. And that's watching them come home from work. Hmm. Who's in better shape? Is it mom or is it dad? Who's got this? What's dad look like? How's he going to be? You know, all of these things that I, the skills that I learned growing up made my career what it was. And, and who but God does that, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that is uh, extraordinary. That, and you're the very first person I've ever talked to who attributed their success- in business and their ability to do business as well as you seem to have done it by virtue of watching the alcoholics who are their parents interact at home. That's 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 wild. You learned how to be a great business person by having two alcoholic parents.
1: And think about it like I played the supply and demand on the street for my pills. Yeah. Well just do that in business. I mean it translates remarkably well.
0: So from the time you were get you got out of high school what, about 18, 19 and you went to work and you mm-hmm. started your rise in the business that you were in take us up to the point at which you finally realized you had a problem and had to do something about it. What were those years like the intervening years?
1: So I got out of school when I was 17 because I'd gotten skipped. And those years were crazy. Uh, got married, started working, mm-hmm. got involved with some people I shouldn't have gotten involved with. My mom had moved to Houston at that point. She left New York uh, and left us up there.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: she was here. Mm-hmm. Poverty in New York versus middle class in Houston, Texas is huge difference,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we grew up, our apartment was 850 square feet. There seven of us stashed in there. My mom's in Texas now. We come down to visit her. She's got a two bedroom apartment, a car, and a pool. Now, would you stay in New York?
2: Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> it was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. Um and, and then the guy I was married to was getting into some big time trouble up there. So uh
2: mm-hmm.
1: so anyway, we, we moved to Houston
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I got pregnant like almost as soon as we moved to Houston, so that's how that all rolled. So I drank in New York and and got sober down here.
0: So we're talking about middle to late 70s. Did you go through treatment or you just did it cold turkey? Well, yeah. You said earlier that you did it when you found out you were pregnant, you just stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the exception of that one drink, you haven't had anything since that stopping. That's remarkable. I mean, just to be able to stop cold turkey.
1: I mean, it wasn't easy and I didn't even know I was doing it, right? So
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's hard to say, hey, yay, look at me. you know. And mm-hmm. I was in and out of the hospital a lot uh, with that pregnancy. So... It wasn't like I had a plan, like I'm going to stop and I'm never going to drink again. Mm-hmm. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that for me.
0: Were you moving towards that frame of mind at, at, at any point? Before you got pregnant, were you starting to notice problems because of your drinking or your husband's uh, drinking?
1: His was more out of control than mine. So that made me look better, right? Uh-huh. Like he's acting crazy. Like he's uh-huh. doing this massive behavior and I'm not. Hmm. So hmm. It, it it made me look better, you know, more more controlled.
0: And, of course, you had a lot of experience with that growing up.
1: Right, I
0: did. Did you find that the same things worked in your marriage with an alcoholic that worked when you were a kid with your alcoholic parents? Oh, certainly. Like what?
1: Especially, like, um, how far to push and when to back off. Like, you know, you hear some people running their mouth and they get in big trouble. Well, I learned a long time ago how far to run the mouth and then just shut it up. Hmm. You know, I, I learned when we were out when to go in the bathroom and hide in the whatever wherever we were, and when to stay out. Just a bunch of skills, you know. I, I figured out, you know, as soon as you get where you're going, you take the car keys. Then you don't wait till you have a discussion about it when we're way loaded, right? Mm-hmm. You take them first, you know. Just like little skills like that 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 come in handy. Uh, always have pasta ready to eat because like it does absorb some, some of the alcohol. You know, (laughs) think ahead. Yeah. But thinking ahead, doesn't that work in business too? You know?
0: Well, it does and yeah. I mean, my goodness, you've already informed me quite well, I might add, about the skills that one can acquire as an alcoholic and growing up in an alcoholic home. Be, those sorts yep. of things. But it sounds to me like yours were a little bit finer tuned than <laughs> than mine may have been. Have you ever considered how things would have progressed had you not gotten pregnant at that point?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure I'd be would have been dead. I mean, I don't think there's any too much doubt. You know, they say in AA, you're, you are get incarcerated, go crazy or die. Yeah. At, at one point, uh, my son's dad and his sponsor tried to, uh, put me into St. Joe's hospital because I was going crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went out the window and, and wouldn't stay. So I was not a, a candidate for any kind of psych hospitalization. I, I did not have criminal behavior mm-hmm. in my history. Well, I, I did, but. It didn't translate into Houston. Like, the stuff I did was New York stuff. It didn't translate to Houston. Uh-huh. Um, so I probably wouldn't have gone to jail. So my only option was, like, I, I would have died. Uh, this, I'm almost sure.
0: As a result of the physical manifestation of the alcoholism, or would it have been more behavior-driven?
1: Uh, probably OD'd at some point. I mean, I was well on my way to taking you know way too much at the end there. You know, too many pills with too much alcohol. I, I think I probably would have OD'd at some point, huh. either purposefully or accidentally. I don't know how it would have gone.
0: So in a, a very real sense, your son saved your life. Right.
1: He did. It's, it's you know, it's the flip, right? It's still the, the flip of my life going on, right? Uh, s- still me giving him life and him saving mine.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful to have that as the realization and move forward. Instead of going back to the behavior, you went forward to new behavior in in AA. I did. So have you been in Houston the the whole time since then, since you got sober?
1: Mm -hmm, I have.
0: I wonder why we never ran into each other over the years. We went to different meetings at different times, I guess, huh?
1: We did. And then um, uh, I took a break from AA for a while. Um,
0: What was that break about?
1: That break was about... First, making a move to Sugarland, where
0: mm-hmm. to me
1: back then, this is just my opinion. Right, the meetings were different. Like a lot of housewives in the suburbs, they were not my vibe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was about the guy I was married to at the time had a, kind of a public figure, um, and he did not want me sharing like as honestly as I share in the meetings. So there was that. But the real core reason was I had started doing a lot of therapeutic work on my trauma hmm. And I had a really hard time uh, parsing what I could speak about in meetings and what I shouldn't speak about in meetings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't know how to go to meetings and not be me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like put up a front or, or share. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. But um,
0: I get it, though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like when we talk in meetings, we just we share what's going on inside of us. And what was going on inside of me was, um, you know, a lot of trauma. So I stayed away for a little bit. So I think that's probably why we missed each other along the along the way.
0: Yeah. So what was it that brought you out of that period of not going to meetings? And how many years are we talking about? Did, did you take this hiatus?
1: Almost ten. Like off and on. Like I'd drop into a meeting, but I wouldn't like. For me, when I say go to meetings, I mean like five a week, seven a week. Like go. That's going to meetings to me. Mm-hmm. Like dropping in once a week or once every other week. To me, that's not making meetings, even though for some that might be like yeah. I went but I wasn't really in the middle of it you know like like I am now my mind got a much more clear about uh-huh. how to talk about as you can hear like I can talk about the past now yeah. talk about the trauma with no not carrying any burden of it I'm free from it uh that took a while but that's definitely there mhm i missed being with my people mm. the people who get me mhm that's super important, and I miss that. I also have like allowed some things as my marriage deteriorated. Mm-hmm. I stayed way too- lo- like way, way too long, and I think back on like you know, if I was being honest in the rooms, I probably never would have stayed that long mm-hmm. uh, as long as I let you know things go um that they did, so doesn't matter how long I'm sober, I still need the people I need to hear. Mm-hmm them speak truth to me, and Mm -hmm. I need to hear me speak truth to them. Because in my mind, stuff is way different than reality. (laughs) Like, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you can tell yourself a bunch of stuff sitting home in your bedroom, and when you hear yourself say it out loud, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I even fell for that myself.
0: Yeah, I get that. The therapeutic work that I've done over the years, and I've done a lot of it too, especially since I've got got clinical depression on top of the alcoholism, but that particular work that I've done has helped me learn what is appropriate versus not appropriate to share and with whom. The other thing I've noticed too is that sometimes it's a little bit easier, depending on the meeting, if you know the people in the meeting pretty well, I usually go a little bit deeper in those meetings. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I have to remember is that As people are listening, it's not a wide-open listen. They're listening through their own experience. They're hearing what I'm saying through their own experience. And what I've noticed is that the ability to be able to just put it all out there, I've never really been that good at doing that. And somewhere along the way, my sponsor Early on, it was a few years in, said, man, if you don't start sharing from your heart, you know, because three to five minutes to share in a meeting, you can talk about anything you want. You can talk about Dr. Bob. You could talk about the book. You could talk about.
2: You can
1: say nothing for three minutes.
0: You could say nothing. You could keep on passing. And the problem is that people really don't get to know you. And because they don't get to know you. They can't Mm -hmm. intuit when you're not doing well to reach out and and pull you away from whatever ledge of the week you're on, right?
1: That's true. Especially if you're an alcoholic like me who's, like, used to hiding that stuff, you know. I have a close girlfriend, the one that I can tell everything to. We start the conversation, and then I'll stop finally when I'm winding down. She goes, is there anything else? Uh. Well, uh, is there anything else? Well, Uh (laughs) probably about (laughs) the eighth time she says it, we're finally getting down to the underlying issue of all the other eight things that we talked about. And she'll finally say, is there anything else? And I'm like, no, I think that's it. (laughs) But what a gift she is, right? To spend the time.
0: What a great friend. That's a one in a million type friend you got there, Rosemary.
1: I know, I know, I know. I love her like crazy, yeah.
0: Sometimes it takes an amalgam of friends to kind of, put that all together but sounds like she's the she's the total deal
1: yeah so I've started doing that with the people I sponsor now like it really keeps working like there's many times something else going on that's really not the presenting thing there's really some other issue underneath it
0: yeah speaking of the people that you sponsor what do you notice about them and their attraction to you and what do you notice about yourself in your own attraction to other people
1: I think the thing I hear most from others about me that I sponsor is um they feel safe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's what I look for in people too. Like before I tell you something about me, yeah, are you safe? Yeah. Will you deal with this with dignity and grace, you know? And I've blundered a million times. I've gone too deep too many times with too, you know, messed up uh I don't want to say used against me, but Heard, yeah. but like, just not properly considered uh, the confidentiality of it, you know.
2: Uh-huh.
1: We're all just people, and uh, I um, sometimes I'm too open, sometimes not open enough, you know. I'm, yeah. like, still, like, so alcoholic in many ways, and my brain still is, like, that in many ways, but I really try now. And another thing I got from living on, uh, living on the street, like I did, like, you have a good instinct for people, you know. You know. Yeah. You, okay, you're safe. I can trust you with this. Um, I can open up yeah. to you, even yeah. if we haven't known each other very long, or I don't speak to you constantly, <laughs> or every yeah. day. So that's that's yeah. what I'm always looking
0: for. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I noticed that in the trauma work that I did, because I did you know quite a bit of it uh, with in therapy for years. Uh, but one of the positive things to really come out of it was to know what the word safety means, what safe mm-hmm. really means. And how to intuit what you just said. Because that you know, I don't know that that's necessarily something we're born with. Maybe we're born with it, but it's usually beaten or abused mm-hmm. out of us. But to know when something is safe, it seems safe, it feels safe, and in reality it is safe. That takes a while to acquire, I think.
1: I think it really does take a lot to acquire. And, and, for, and it takes a lot of trial and error. You know, uh, a, yeah. like putting your foot in the water yeah. and, and then going, oh, no, 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 you're not who I thought you were. Uh, I'm going to step back. But yeah. then when you find the person uh, or the people who are, to be able to continue to walk mm-hmm. into the deep with them is another piece, right? Mm. You know, is, an, is another oh, movement yeah. towards health for me.
0: Right. That's, that's an amazing way to think about it too. So at 40 years sober now, we've kind of built the story of your life around this interview and I really appreciate you sharing with me about details that you might or might not want to talk about in other settings, but it means, that, it means a lot to me. That means I've gained some degree of trust. What does your life look like right now and where do you see yourself going forward being sober all these years through AA?
1: Until I'm in a setting like this, I don't ever think that I have forty years of sobriety. Uh-huh. I see people's name on the board for their anniversary, <laughs> and that like, they have twenty eight or they have thirty two, and I'm like, man, that's a long time. <laughs> I never think, well, but you have more than them. No, that that, that switch doesn't really come <laughs> on for me. Yeah, you know, today my life is like a amazing blessing, and I don't know how God has mm-hmm. done this because every year of my sobriety, I would say. Is better than the the last. Like, how has God done that for 40 years? Mm -hmm. How can it still be getting better? It's still getting better. Yeah. Um, My spiritual life is still uh, growing and shifting. I met with somebody uh, to talk about some spiritual stuff like two weeks ago, and that person wasn't real sure. And they sent me to their person, and then that person knew. So there's still a seeking and a looking. To grow spiritually, to be able to be Mm -hmm. open so that, so that the God in me can be released more and more and more. And to me, that's my work today to get so rid of self and selfish wants so that, that God can really, uh, so I can be the person I, I think I was born to be, like that I was always meant to be, that everything, you know, trauma and drinking and out and drugs, Covered it up, and for me, mm-hmm. AA and the steps, and and that process of uncovering all that is where I live mm-hmm. today, and it's beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. To be able to love people freely, and not be afraid of them, mm-hmm. to see that there's goodness mm-hmm. in the world—that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment to kind of wrap things up with Rosemary. You're a beautiful person, and I'm so glad I've gotten to to spend this amount of time with you because. I might not have gotten to this level of of knowing you in meetings for years to come. Yeah. Just being able to sit down with you and hear your connection between the virtually unlimited supply of God's goodness in your life and your willingness to look at it realistically and without closing the door to the past or regretting it, but knowing that we move forward. It's it's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, so I would really love in closing, like, if you wouldn't mind if I read a little bit of the big book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Okay, so
1: first, First is going to be this is what I know, and I don't know very much. But first, I'm going to let you know what I know, and then I'm going to read from 164, which okay. is my favorite. Okay. So this is what I've learned, and whether it's people or drugs and alcohol, this is like they can hurt your body and they can shatter your mind into mm. a million pieces,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they can crush your will so that you're just a shell of a human being. But they can't take your heart. Mm-hmm. They can't take the essence of who you are and who you were mm-hmm. meant to be. That's yours. And only you can give it away. Mm -hmm. So the way I've learned to uncover what that Mm. is and give it away is on from our book on 164.
2: Mm.
1: And the process is to abandon yourself to God as you understand God, to admit your faults to Him and to your fellows, to clear away the wreckage of your past, to give freely of what you find, and to join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and
0: keep you until then. Wow. What an inspiring way to end this. It's it's just, wow. I love what you said before you read that because you, you said it in just the right context to mean so much more you. when you read it. I, I think that that's beautiful. I want to thank you for doing this from the bottom of my heart, Rosemary. I love you and you're a really good person. And I intuitively, I've known that and I knew that's why I needed to talk to you. I love you too. This has just been a, a, a remarkable opportunity for that.
1: You know you look right into people's faces. It's very sweet.
0: Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Rosemary B. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to as many people as you can? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. If you leave a multi-star rating wherever you get this podcast, that'll also help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.